welcome back to the teacher's lounge this is the second part of our three-part discussion on trade networks during the post-classical era as we join back miss burkholder will lead us in a talk about culture um yeah so kind of touching on a lot of those topics it looks like we're starting to bleed into this topic of culture and how culture relates to all of these different social structures that developed around the different trade routes um kind of a uniform or kind of common pattern that we see on all the major trade routes of this era is the setup of diasporic communities along these trade routes and these trade routes are expansive they're huge they don't you know like Ms. Duran Arelli was talking about, it's not just in one line. You know, we're we're in all these different directions, all these different places. And if you wanted to go and see the world, you could go along these trade routes. If you were a merchant and you wanted to make money, you would go along these trade routes. If you were a religious missionary, of course you'd want to go and spread your religious message. And so these trade routes had so many different purposes besides just economic, although they were set up under economic purpose. Um, and these diaspora communities, they they did a lot of different things. They like set themselves up along the trade routes so they could not only economically benefit, but they could influence uh, those who went along the trade routes. And so we see like, you know, Persians translating religious texts. We see um, the Hindus uh, influencing the Muslims, like in the Delhi Sultanate. We see the Muslims taking over parts of India um, politically. We see Muslim merchants going all the way to Indonesia and we see a huge Muslim community there. So we're seeing a lot of interacting of cultures on a lot of different levels. And so kind of my question um, for you guys is, even though there was like transferring of cultures between like indigenous people um, and people who traveled there, um, how does this contribute to the power shift and social stratification and economic stratification? Because on our previous topic, we did talk about, you know, economic power and the, the power shifting completely for the world to come. But how does that uh, cultural diffusion from between you know, communities, how does that affect the power shift and how does that affect the social shift? So actually, I'd like to jump in on this one. This one's pretty exciting. Um, so I see economics is constantly changing the hierarchies that are taking place. And there are two things here that I see massively changing because of these interactions. And that's the status of merchants, which I think long term in history is incredibly important and is probably the driving engine of where we see history kind of going. So throughout most of history into the post-classical era, merchants were always looked down upon because merchants are the selfish guys who basically all they care about is money and profits and currency. But all of a sudden we're starting to see in most of the parts of the world, so like in the Islamic world now, Muhammad being a merchant is accepting of merchants as long as they act justly. Uh, within Southeast Asia, in places like Indonesia or the Srivijava kingdoms, you see merchants become incredibly important because that's an area of trade. So now all of a sudden merchants are starting to move up, not just in middle class in the sense of wealth, but also in the sense of status. And long term, this is gonna allow them to challenge a lot of the monarchs who are in power because the monarchs need them in order to develop wealth. So you're gonna see hierarchy and stratification changing there for merchants. The second one that I would say too that people might wanna jump onto is gender. So this doesn't change dramatically, but think of for a moment like in China, like who produces the silk? Well, it's women who are dealing with silk from the mulberry trees. That gives them a certain status that they did not have previously. Granted, that doesn't dismember the patriarchy, but it definitely gives them more status and gets them to cross over from the private sphere 
into the public sphere. So it's challenging that separation of spheres. So I think those are examples of those kinds of changes. I'll jump in here too, and I'll mention, <clears throat> I think that one of the key uh, changes that we see at this time, not maybe not changes, but um, if we if we see sort of a power shift, um, it would be away from nomadic societies and more towards settled societies. You know, for a long time, we see pastoral and nomadic peoples throughout what we would traditionally call the Silk Road. And just like Mr. Zucker said, um, you know, merchants who were gaining more and more of a of, of a footing in societies and uh, who needed and who even challenged the power of kings, um, those kings needed merchants and merchants needed kings uh, and political structures around them in order to be in order to survive. And so, for the economic engines of the time to be successful, you needed political. Uh, status and you needed political security and you needed foundations that made it possible for you to do your business and in uh, a world that was um, I don't want to say entirely made up of of nomadic people because there weren't it wasn't all nomadic people throughout Central Asia and into the Middle East Um, but there were still a large large numbers of people around uh, that part of the world who still existed in, in nomadic societies and who gravely threatened uh, the success and long-term ambitions of people who had, had settled, uh, agricultural people. And uh, so I, what I think you end up seeing here is because of the economic opportunities that existed, um, the idea of settled societies, armies, um, people who could defend themselves, as Ms. Burkholder said earlier, uh, the establishment of large capital cities and citadels around the, these parts of the world that were connected by by trade and, and connected by political alliance. Um, that actually to a large degree, when we see between 1200 and 1400, even though we refer to the Mongols as being the last nomadic incursion, so to speak, they also were the ones who were civilized, you know, in the end. Um, and so you see kind of a win for civilization, uh, settled people, putting an end to nomadic societies to a large degree in, in throughout from, from the Mediterranean world all the way to China. I, something I, when you were talking, I, I've always had this question in my mind, even when I teach it to students about the Mongols, because they were so nomadic and we teach them as these like pastoralist, you know, barbarians who just came in and murdered everyone. And that's kind of like this narrative that we read in history books, but it's because of their expansiveness due to, you know, partially due to the the trade routes, but their eventual tolerance and their eventual openness to be diffused by their conquered people is what really led them to being the most powerful empire. So I'm glad you you mentioned that, um, Mr. Annarelli, because I always think it's really um, kind of brushed over subject. I always prefer to put things in the simplest terms sometimes for students. Um, and I know that when we talk about trade, sometimes the focus is so much on the wealth that it generated. But I really love everything that you guys are pointing out that we sometimes forget that trade really does favor the underdog, right? It does favor those people that sometimes are considered barbaric, the 
women uh, who are under patriarchy or even merchants who are not really viewed that favorably within a lot of societies like this trade is kind of it is favoring the underdogs and helping them rise and change the world to kind of fit uh what they need right mr karbohal if i could jump onto your point about the underdog one of the things that happens when the mongols conquer these areas is that it does upend some of these traditional powers so for example, the Sunni Muslims lose their minds when the Mongols just destroy the caliphate because to them it's the end times. But for groups like Shia Muslims or Jews, people who hadn't really been in power, the Mongols are a great opportunity because the Mongols treat them fine and they don't necessarily mind being under Mongols any more than being under a Sunni Muslim empire. And it allows these groups of people who, like you said, were kind of underdogs to actually uh, become fairly successful. Yeah, and that's so important. Also with peasants, right? The recruitment of peasants into Mongol armies. That's like, you no longer have to be a peasant under the thumb of some feudal lord or that you can now have more power. That's so revolutionary, you know?